This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Yeah. I like it when the girls stop by in the summer. Do you remember? Do you remember when we met that summer? New kids on the block had a bunch of hits. Chinese food makes me sick. And I think it's fly when girls stop by for the summer. For the summer. I like girls that wear Abercrombie and fish. I take her if I have one wish. Well, she's been gone since that summer. Since that summer. Pop mama, they speak in span. Met you one summer and it all began. You're the best girl that I ever did see. The great Larry Bird jersey, 33. When you take a sip, you buzz like a hornet. Billy Shakespeare wrote a whole bunch of sonnets. Call me Willie Whistle cause I can't speak, baby. Something in your eyes went and drove me crazy. Now I can't forget you and it makes me mad. Left one day and never came back. Stayed all summer then went back home. Macaulay Culkin wasn't home alone. Fell deep in love but now we ain't speaking Michael J. Fox was Alex P. Keaton When I met you I said my name is Rich You look like a girl from Abercrombie and Fitch New kids on the block had a bunch of hits Chinese food makes me sick And I think it's fly when girls stop by for the summer For the summer I like girls that wear Abercrombie and Fitch I take her if I have one wish well, She's been gone since that summer Since yeah. that summer Cherry pants, cold crush, rock stud, boogie Stella at Hawk S. Backroll Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 221 for May MMXXII. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New 
issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. I'm realizing with that intro, some of my words were blending together, the sounds were blending. And so perhaps it's good to do some vocal warm ups if you're going to podcast in the morning or else just talking straight off is not going to be very good. Hey, happy May. It's the end of May. Actually, it took me a very long time to sit down and do this. I think I was hitting some podcast fatigue. And now we're just getting to some procrastination, which is awful. But I just, you know, wanted some time to... (laughs) not have anything to do. And so sometimes life gets in the way. And now here we are. It's not the ninth hour, but it's getting or the 11th, but it is getting pretty close. Happy equal pay. Part of that is you notice I have a for those who are watching anyways, I have a new haircut, which you know, I've I've been talking about that faux hawk. I'm like, this is the summer to do it. Kind of my last summer to be I think freewheeling before maybe I get you know, an, an adult job, a professional job that I care about and I'm passionate about. So I th- I'm finally going to do it. And then the, my stylist said, how about a little color, you know, for free? And I thought, okay. And she's listing out the things. And I said, do you have purple? And she had a purple light color, but it's basically purple, but it worked out because, you know, Megan Rapinoe, one of the figureheads of the equal pay. So yes, U.S. Women's National Team finally getting that court decision to go their way. And funnily enough, with this hair color, I was asking her like, oh, is it going to look weird if I style it any other way than up? She said, what are you talking about? It's just a day. So it's been a week now and it's still in there. This is what happened last time. She said it was a washout and then it was there for months or weeks at least. So, oh, well. Shout out to Ben, aka Spoiler Kid, for graduating high school and early. He's... He's a smart cookie. So congratulations to him and good luck on Bona Fortuna on your future journey in university. It's super exciting. And is there anything else before I get into kind of the big talk of NYC? Actually, there is one other thing I wanted to, I'm going to have to make my rounds, I think, for all of my podcasts. I've already done it once with Quinoa, but just kind of where I pop on my show. So I have recently found out that the G word, G-Y-P-S-Y is a slur. And I had never, I didn't, I did not know that. I use it pretty freely. I've used it in the past. I, of course, use it frequently, or at least on three episodes that I can think of, of my dear reader. And so when I had been watching a video by Princess Weeks on YouTube, and she talked about that being a slur, and someone in the chat had said, when was that? And she said, for forever. I thought, oh my gosh, I have been using this and I had no idea. And it's one of those that just like feels differently because I feel like there are so many racial or nationalist slurs or religious slurs that like, you know, when it's coming off the tip your tongue, you know, in your heart that's bad. But whenever I said it, like, I've never thought that I never had the intent of doing that. I think they're a really cool group of people. So generally, you've got the Romani, but that's hard to use because not all of them are Romani. So I'll just have to figure out, I think a better term to use, but it's just crazy because in Jane Eyre, you know, Charlotte's using it freely to talk about, well, just in that certain scene, right? And then you've got the the G woman and 
I've already admitted frequently that I find that scene to be really fun, even though I know how culturally pro- problematic it is. But I just like that Rochester is a complete troll <laughs> to, to especially Blanche, but all these other women. One of my guests came on and had used that as well. And then in the manga that I just covered on the previous, you know, is in there. And I, I was saying it. So I'm very sorry. Uh, especially, I don't know if I have any Romani or I'm going to have to figure out what other term I could use. Traveler, I think Donovan had maybe mentioned or Harry when I was on Quinoa. So I'll have to figure something out. But I am really sorry. And, and this is just a good lesson, right? Where you admit what you've done, you claim it. And you don't feel shame. You just learn from it and move on. So now I know. And I'll be sure to pass it on as well. That's whew, crazy. I had no idea. So anyways, I shall move on. I want to talk about my New York City trip. And this is part of the reason why I think it had taken me so long to talk about or to record this because I knew that this was going to just be uh, crazy to talk about. So the end of April, I went to New York City and the main plan was to see Macbeth starring Ruth Nega and Daniel Craig. And once we found out that there is this limited showing with him in it, I immediately texted Josh and Don, who are fans of Craig's in particular because of his his run or his stint as James Bond. And I said, let's do this. Let's meet up and hang out. I hadn't seen Don for a year. And then Josh, I hadn't seen for two years. He, you know, that's why he's one of my best friends, right? He came to see me in Men, Men on Boats. So we're doing it, right? We're doing it. We've got our tickets, got our hotel, all that. So let me just run through this. I've talked to a couple people and went day by day. So hopefully maybe I can clean it up and it won't be super long. Maybe I'll try to call these guys. So here's the caveat. Well, first of all, let me say that this New York City trip has two subtitles. One subtitle is Lost Boys and the other subtitle (laughs) is Burn Victims, which I'll get into both of them. Maybe I'll call them and see if they want to defend themselves. But watchers, listeners, you know, I've never led you astray. I, you know, I let you know when there are biases. So I'm going to be as candid as possible with what had happened. And I think you can believe me, but I'll maybe I'll give it a shot to see if they are awake. I mean, it's 815 where Don is and who knows what Harry's doing right now, but we'll see. So day one, which would have been a Friday, I it's just basically a travel day. On the Amtrak, I've done that two times now, which is actually really pleasant and got to do some schoolwork. It was pretty uneventful. There was not a guy whose ex-girlfriend was a stripper this time. So, yeah, did some schoolwork because it's near near the end of the semester at this point. And then, which I'm done, huzzah, got two A's, humble brag. So thank you for all of your encouragement to everyone out there. Super excited to continue on this journey. Back to the story. And Donovan was flying in and Josh was driving because he's a crazy man. So Donovan arrives maybe two hours before I am. But I feel like by the time he gets from LaGuardia, I think he was, to where I am, that he could pick me up, which actually it worked really well. I got off the train. He had taken an Uber, I think, and we met. And so 
got to the hotel and then we're basically waiting for Josh and, and Don and I spent that time together just uh, walking around, went to Midtown Comics, had dinner at Junior's and which is funny because I suggested Junior's because I thought, oh, I'm not going to go to Junior's again after this because I think Claire will choose something else. But I was wrong, but I, I don't want to skip ahead. And poor Josh it, it gets in late, late. I mean, he's driving up. At, I think it was maybe three or four. He said he was in Maryland. I'm like, man, you're on 495. I don't think you know how long it's going to be. So yeah, he he was certainly wasted in the sense of travel wasted by the time he got there. But that was fun. But yeah, not too much happened. So Saturday is the day of the show. And really the only time that I'm very strict about when we do something is with shows. And so I'm just, you know, freewheeling, but hey, I'd like to get to the theater at 1.30, which is usually when they open doors and just get ready so there's no stress. So breakfast, hanging out. I know we went to Book Off, which is just a crazy miscellaneous store that has, yeah, absolutely tons of books, got manga in the basement. The whole level is manga, Japanese and English. It has all sorts of miscellaneous pop culture items like action figures and pop Funko. You've got vintage video games, uh, music, all of this is crazy. And we spent the majority of time there and then ended up, I don't think there was anything before that and then ended up going to the show. And the show was really interesting. You know, you go into a Shakespeare and Shakespeare has been adapted in so many different ways, so many different times. So you're kind of wondering what's going to happen. And this one is, I would say, pretty minimalist. The set was definitely minimalist. You've got the three witches basically on stage, which some people, there was someone next to me that said, oh, stagehands, because they were making the stew. But actually, those are the witches. They were on 15 minutes before curtain, maybe, and actively making the stew and everything they made. There was even this really weird concoction. This woman came out with like this blender, like a human sized blender pole and was doing and then Daniel Craig drinks it. So everything that was made on stage, people ended up eating. And even at the end, the huge stew, which I guess was stewing. I don't know. For the entire play, everyone eats at the very end. But like I said, yeah, so pretty minimalist. And I think Daniel Craig, who has such a persona, is pretty charismatic. I think his Macbeth is probably the most charismatic and laid back that I have seen. And, you know, even the first scene that you see him and Banquo, like kind of joking around, like, who are these hags and that sort of thing. And that was interesting because I've never seen that before, but it balanced out, I think, the seriousness of Ruth Mega's Lady Macbeth and how she is is also her ambition and maybe her ratcheting up her emotion, whereas he's like, even he also, both of those certainly balance out. And of course, at the end, he is getting kind of crazy as well. I like how they, it was a diverse cast in terms of race and gender. Banquo was a woman. Now I've forgotten her name, but she was Persephone in Hades Town. Sorry, the poster's right behind me. And they changed it. So it's not like, hey, we're pretending that Banquo is a man. No, they changed those pronouns. And Malcolm, the son of the king that is slain, was an actor on Orange is the New Black and used they them pronouns so they used they them pronouns and then instead of saying king at the very end said 
what did they say? Now it's been a little while. It was like crowned highness. It was something else that was basically genderless, right? Which I thought was really cool, just changing that up. So I'm trying to think of anything else. And then at the very end, you know, after everything, the actors come out and even the dead ones, they all sit down. And one of the witches who also played one of the the sons that gets slain, she begins singing and also passing out these bowls of soup. And so the actors are, you know, just fellowshipping together. And I think the song was about, if I remember correctly, you know, knowing what I do now, what I have behaved as I did back then kind of thing. But I thought that was just a unique ending. And they did cut some things because I had recently reread Macbeth right before. And so they cut out another one of the sons. So it was really just Malcolm. And I was ready for (laughs) one of the lines that says, what you egg Uh, as in like young child. And that didn't happen. So they did potentially to condense or at least make it more, I don't know, palatable for maybe audiences who are coming for Daniel Craig, but are not coming for Shakespeare. Which I was coming for both because Macbeth is probably my second favorite after Julius Caesar. And annoyingly, there was someone right in front of me that was taking photos during the performance, zooming in on Craig. And so no flash, but, you know, you see the, I guess the backlight and that's just obnoxious. I should have done something in intermission and said, hey, watch this person, but I didn't. So I regret doing that. Okay. So that was Saturday. And then we split off. Josh wanted to go see the Office musical parody. And I'm not really a fan of the Office. So I was like, eh, I want to go see something else. And Don accompanied. And then Harry was going to, oh, this is the first part of Lost Boys. Harry was going to meet up with them, but he was not sure where the theater was. And then when he found out where the theater was, or, you know, he didn't know like the address. I think he asked, asked it like right after our show and said, you know, where is the theater? What time? Which is a bit concerning. And and I'll, I'll reveal some personal things about myself after this, I guess, or you'll get a sense of who I am from this. And then uh, he wasn't sure how to get there, but I think he he later on found out. Did I say that Harry was going to meet us? Yeah. So Harry was going to come and uh, stay basically Saturday and leave Sunday and, and hang out with us because currently he's in near Boston. So it wasn't too bad. I, I basically cajoled him into coming for a day. <laughs> so, you know, nagging and manipulation can be positive people. So that, you know, that's not my issue. So I let them go. I think, you know, Josh knows what he's doing. I go and meet Claire and we've decided to see for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. And sure enough, she decides, cause I said, Hey Claire, you know, you choose last time when we met up, I chose juniors one, you choose. And then she said, can't we just do juniors? <laughs> so, I mean, she likes juniors. I like juniors. So juniors two times out of everyone on the trip, I'm the only one who did not have any pizza, which is pretty funny. So we're eating and then we go into colored girls and or four colored girls. And I wasn't sure what to expect. Honestly, I was, I just knew I wanted to experience, I think a, a deeper play and I had heard good things. And I was also looking for 
play with people that I wouldn't normally see. And someone was saying next to us, we were, I got some cheap tickets, but we could see everything. It was mezzanine and then the back, which was really good actually. And the person next to us said that it was basically a play of monologues. And I thought, well, the only one I know with monologues is the vagina monologues. And I hope it's a bit more stirring than that, which they're funny, but I just thought, oh man, are they just going to be women on stage? And whoa, no, no, not just women on stage. So all of the women, they're just named by colors. So lady in orange, lady in red, all of that. And yes, they do have monologues, but there's choreography. I mean, they come out and there's music and there are images on these canvas screens and they're all dancing in the beginning and lady in black it starts off with the spoken word poem. So there's poetry, there's prose monologue, some singing, spoken word, as I said. It, yeah, it, it's really, it's really powerful, is all I can really say. I really enjoy that. And it's so disheartening because I could only see the mezzanine, but it seemed like the, the theater was half full and they were even going to end their run early. But then they got some Tony nominations. I think one of them is for Best Revival of a Play. And so now they've decided to keep their run going and maybe even extended. But I cried a little bit during one monologue, which was about rape, which was just really powerful. And, you know, sometimes people don't believe you when you are oftentimes, you know, raped by someone that you know. Well, you are seen hanging out with him. So it's probably not rape or it's probably your fault sort of thing. And then at the very end, Lady in Red, who I believe that actress is, now I can't remember, my playbill is not with me, but that actress is nominated for a Tony. She is talking about, she is the wife of a serviceman who comes back, has PTSD. She has two young children and he is abusive towards her. She ends up getting out of that life. And one at one point, she takes him back. So it's it's going to be a little fuzzy, but at, at least the big title. He either like breaks in or she lets him in and, and is considering taking him back. But it's it quickly turns and she, you know, regrets letting him into that space. And he beckons the kids over and it seems like, oh, maybe he, you know, he's being loving. And then all of a sudden he is dangling the kids over the balcony, you know, saying, take me back or they die. And this pregnant woman on stage, right, is speaks of how these these children are killed. And meanwhile, in the background, you know, then she starts wailing and in the background, uh, like of of this theater world, you know, you can hear the outside world sometimes come in and, ooh, it's still getting to me. The, you know, you can hear sirens. And so she is wailing and whoo, that, 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 yeah, you know, I was crying there. And then the, they kind of, they try to bring you back up and that's the end. And that was unsettling, I guess, is the only thing I can say, because it was this intense emotional moment, this low. And then, you know, you go up a bit, they try to pull you out of it. And then the play ends. And I had thought that the play was going to end when there was singing about, you know, loving, loving themselves, loving ourselves, right. And for different reasons, but no, it was just hard to, to, 
bring us out of that. And, and I'm kind of trying to work through the organization of that play that they would do that. And afterwards, I had a hard time pulling myself together, gathering myself and just ask Claire if we could like walk a bit and just trying to keep it together. And then she needed to get back to Columbia. And so I dropped her off at the subway and then went back and proceeded to sob for a couple hours, to be honest. And I'm still trying to work through why it affected me so deeply. I immediately the next day actually ended up getting this so that I can read through. I haven't read through it yet. As you can see, it's like still, <laughs> it's still, the emotion is still lingering. I watch interviews on it or see stuff about it. I get teary-eyed. I think part of it is the theater experience period. I find it to be very intimate because, you know, with screens, there's this disconnect. You're clearly an audience member with the screen. You know, there's some sort of fictional reality there. But with theater, everyone's breathing the same air and you are a part of that experience. And so I think being there and watching that go down was super powerful. I am not obviously, you know, a colored girl, but this whole play, I think, spoke to me as a woman. And many of those vignettes or, or poems really spoke to me. Monologues spoke to me as a woman. I think having a pregnant woman talking about the death of two small children was also very powerful. It was just a powerful experience. And, uh, you know, part of me felt guilty, like, oh, my gosh, should I not be crying. Is that like white guilt? But I don't think it had anything to do with race for, for the reasons that it was affecting me. But just very powerful. And if you get a chance to go up there and see it, I really, I hope you do. I hope you do because that theater does not deserve to be half empty. I should say Claire and I were going to go on a run, but the Columbia line, which I think is the one was shut down. She had to do some crazy stuff to get over. And I thought it's just going to be an inconvenience for you. So don't worry about it. But I did run. It was super fun. I've always wanted to run in New York city, but I just, I don't stay in the city. And so for two days, I think two or three days, no, I guess two days I woke up early and I ran along the Hudson. That's where the hotel was. And I went one way and the other way. And I was like, very cool of seeing, Oh, you know, Spider-Man, whenever you were swinging in the Hudson, they pulled you right back out. They didn't like it, but it was pretty cool to see the piers and just run in the city. So that was Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. The guys kind of just hung out and I just needed to be by myself, which they understood. Sunday, I woke and ran and the guys are still sleeping. So Harry was at a different hotel and I hit him up and asked if he was awake and he was. And so I said, hey, let's go to Whataburger. No, that's not what it's called. It's uh, Essebago. There we go. Essebago. So here's part one of Lost Boys. So I uh, actually part one was poor Harry not knowing how to get to the theater. But part two of Lost Boys is that I thought, hey, you know, I told him, I said, hey, I'm going to test you. Which way do we go? I think we're going to Sixth Avenue, like 32nd. I said, oh, are we going right or left? And he said the wrong answer. Luckily, I wasn't letting him lead. But we, we went down, we made it to Essebago, hung out, came back to the hotel and gathered the other guys and the plan is to go to Midtown and the professor, my chief Tata correspondent, Professor Carolyn Cook, is going to meet us there. So we all managed to get there. We get there a little bit 
early and we're just waiting outside like nerds, you know, a line is forming and Carolyn appears hung out in Midtown a bit. I throw Harry under the bus because he said, now, I don't know if you listened to quinoa, but he said at one point on a podcast, really wrongly, but people don't seem to want to correct these gentlemen, but I have taken it upon myself to do that. He said there are no female Jedi, which is a blatant, (laughs) it's misinformation. That is hashtag fake news. So I said, because we were in a corner, I said, oh, Carolyn, did you know that Harry said (laughs) there are no female Jedi? Boy, howdy. And then he said, would it be better if I said there are no female Jedi of note? And she said, no, that would not be better. So then the rest of that time, I think there was some trolling of like, oh, what's that? You know, a female Jedi. So afterwards, we were going to go to Koreatown and find a restaurant. Harry has been rediscovering his Korean roots. And so I thought that would be pretty fun. And and Carolyn wanted to uh, go there as well. And so this is where it happens. This is where Lost Boys begins, as well as burn victims. So I'll, I'll try to merge them together. I want to say to you all that I was having the time of my life with this. So please, (laughs) under no circumstance, should you think that I was helpful and not trolling because I was, I would just laugh. I was not helpful at all. So we go to drama bookstore and I can't remember how it happened. Let's just say it was me. It probably was. But I decided that Harry should get us to Koreatown to where he wanted to go or just Koreatown in general. And we'll figure it out. So now he's in the middle of drama bookstore, which another place you should visit if you go to New York City. He's on his phone. And Carolyn's right next to me. And I'm like, oh, Taurus, am I right? Because he's on his phone. And then she starts talking about some things, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she points to Donovan and basically says, like, you know, look at this guy. Because Donovan's up taking pictures of the sculpture, taking a picture of the books. And she says, you know, does does he not have books where he comes from? (laughs) So she, listen. You may think that she is a stern professor with no sense of humor, but that is not her. She always astounds me with the things that she comes out. I I don't want you to think that the guys were the only victims in this. I, too, was burned by the professor. She saw my suitcase and was like, are you here for a week? Which, funnily enough, someone at at the Amtrak station also said, but listen, I needed different clothing depending on the weather, the temperature. I had some shoes depending on the outfit. And then, of course, my running gear. So whatever. But she got her burns in on me as well. I can't remember all of them, but the guys, I certainly do. So we start off, Harry's our navigator, and we quickly get lost. And part of the reason, because I know Harry will say this, I I could, he'll say it um, if I end up calling them. Part of the reason is that we did have to go back to the hotel to get his stuff so that he uh, could leave directly afterwards. And then we got kind of turned around. So we, we got lost. Okay. I'll say we, we're in a group. Okay. I know exactly where to go. Again, am I being helpful? Absolutely not this is great this is good learning for men is just put them in the wild and have them figure it out meanwhile carolyn is right next to me and and i turned to her at one point and say hey you know how are you doing and she said 
I'm just, I'm struggling not to take control of the situation. And that just cracks me up. I'm like, this is just how, you know, this is how I normally am like very taking control of the situation. This is where we need to go. That's what, that's my thing. So I'm just kind of letting it go and laughing about it. Uh, I told her at one point, you know, listen, because I think she may have changed some of her opinions of me with some of the things that go on, because I do have a rule, which you guys can tell me if this is ridiculous or not. But I do have a rule that if we are dining together, that the we're not allowed to be on our phones just because we're, you know, we don't see each other that often. Let's not be on our phones. You know, let's let's engage with each other. And so uh, she wonders why I think I have this hold on them, why they listen to me. But hey, they do listen to me. I think it's good. It's not like I'm telling them to take drugs. I'm telling them, hey, put your phones down. So at one point I did turn to her and I say, hey, listen, you know how Babs is with Cass and Steph. Just think of me as Barbara Gordon and and these, you know, these guys are Steph and Cass. And she starts cracking up at that. So we're lost still. And we end up in front of the train station, which is pretty funny. Donovan decides to now help out and he's trying to orient himself. And at one point he says something like, okay, well, we're here right now. And the way he said it was like so existential that even she's even Carolyn said something like, well, that's really deep, but it was so (laughs) it was so sarcastic. It's man. That's what I'm saying. Burn victims everywhere she turns. So we travel on. I'm not helpful. I'm just laughing at every wrong turn and occasionally looking over at Carolyn to see her reactions. We do finally make it to Koreatown, find a place to eat. And as a personal anecdote, I do really poorly with spice. And I found out that Koreans, uh, apparently all their dishes are very spicy. I was able to find something that I could tolerate, which is great. But that does make me nervous if I ever decide to venture over to South Korea because I may not make it. So, yeah, I guess that's mostly it for that day. I mean, that was just the whole thing. I mean, we made it, which is great. But then Harry needed to get to his train. And so Carolyn took control of the situation. She said, "Okay, follow me. And so, you know, she takes off and and we go and we make it to the train station. We take some pictures. An unfortunate thing happened where Donovan's sweatshirt of contrapoints was stolen off the street. It was crazy. It was there at one point on this mechanical box and then gone after some pictures, which is just insane. Never think it's going to happen to you. We bid adieu to Harry and then Carolyn's got to go to her car and Don is a bit chilly. He's chilled without his sweatshirt. So he breaks off as well to go with Josh and just rest up. And I walk Carolyn back to her car and we just uh, chat along the way. And I mean, she she got me. I wish I could remember the other things she made fun of me for, but I cannot. Maybe sometimes I misspeak. And she catches me on it. And I remember at one point when I was at her house in the winter, I said kryptonite and I meant carbonite. And so I said, well, he could mean about because the Mandalorian says, you know, you can come in hot or you can come in cold, something like that, warm or cold. And I always took the cold to mean the carbonite. But I said, oh, well, it could mean the kryptonite. And then there was like a pause and she said, you mean carbonite. So, you know, she holds me accountable. And yeah, bit ado. So our party is back to the three of us and we were going to go and get a dessert. I wish I could remember the name of this place. It was pretty cool. 
You could do anything with ice cream, cookies, and donuts. You could make sort of concoctions. And after that, I want to take a couple of pictures of marquees just because I like to have those. And I forgot to take one because of my emotional distress for four colored girls. Went back to the hotel and basically hung out. And I was, I was wiped, I have to say. And then, yeah, Monday was basically the travel day back. So we said goodbye to Donovan first. And then Josh and I were more or less the same. He had to take the Long Island Railroad out. And then I, of course, was taking the, the Amtrak back to Charlottesville. So I think I think that is my NYC trip. I'll let you know if something pops up as I'm remembering everything. But it it was great. Uh, I felt emotions that I never thought I would feel. And I had a great deal of fun with my friends. And it was nice to see Harry in person after becoming, because I feel like Harry and I are actual friends now because of uh, the films that we've watched and playing video games together and everything. So that was pretty cool. To Oh, I have to say, Harry calling Donovan out is we were outside Midtown or something or walking on our way to Midtown. And I had mentioned something, I think that we had both seen, or maybe he had seen. I said, oh, is that going to make it on your top 10? End of the year list. And he said, no, because I've, it's not the first time that I've seen it. <gasps> and I pointed to Donovan, who is ahead talking to Carol. I'm like, oh, that hip. And he, and, and Harry said, I know he breaks the rules. So I think that Harry called Donovan a hypocrite without actually using the H word, but it was there. Okay. I think that's it. If anything else pops up, absolutely. I'll bring it in, I guess, in a non sequitur. I will say that, you know, please, Harry, Donovan, email me if I've gotten anything wrong or if you want the audiences to know your perspective on this matter. I frankly think I was pretty open about everything because... As I say, I was not helpful at all. I was just laughing because I wanted the the men to get us there. But see, what where would men be without women who have strict schedules, know where to go, that sort of thing? Okay, that was NYC. Long intro. Shags Mac and Cheese of Comfort and Joy, aka Find Your Joy segment. I mean, NYC was great. Yesterday, I got to see Mr. and Mrs. Cheapskate, aka Professor Allen or aka professor quarterbin and mrs quarterbin i was trying to think of all his aliases or my chief hairstyle correspondent they are going on their way to nyc and yeah took a little side trip and visited me at the hospital and and sat with them for lunch which was just a joy to be with them and then finally ellie and aj Oh, I finally saw ellie and aj in concert i think i've spoken of them before i've used their songs but Everything they're putting out uh, since their return really has just been amazing, but they've never come really close enough for me. And there's a small venue in Norfolk that I love that I feel like is just perfect for them. And then last year they had this virtual concert that went through their whole new album and then they dropped their, their tour dates and bam. The Norval was on it. So I got tickets right then and went and I got front row. I was the first person in line, which is pretty insane, and got front row. So it was, it was an amazing, amazing experience. I'm so happy and blessed to have been able to go and do that. Oh, you know what? There are two things that I did forget to see. Again, personal things, but I want to know what your opinion is on this. I like to objectify 
the rear ends of animals, in particular dogs. But if you know, because I can see them mostly on the streets, but, you know, cats and things like that. And so I will often send images of said behinds to Don and Harry for them to enjoy. And on the streets of New York City. Uh, you know, if we would see a dog, I would stop Donovan. I'm like, oh, Donovan, Donovan, what do you think about the fuzziness of this behind? You know, is it is it too fuzzy? Is it not fuzzy enough? What do you think? And or furry, you know, I, I use those interchangeably. And he called me a deviant. He called me a deviant. He said there's something wrong with me. Now, this began, I think, this predilection here is because we're, Don and I were rewatching Cowboy Bebop, the anime. And I'm like, and every time Ayn would come on, I'm like, oh, look at the fuzzy bottom. And then that was kind of my litmus of what's this remake going to be, aka Cowboy Betrayal? What's it going to be? It was pretty fuzzy. But now I see all these little fuzzy behinds. And so he thinks this is deviant behavior. So I ask you, audience, do you think that this is deviant behavior? Behavior to look at the furry behinds of animals and also objectify them, perhaps, and also judge on the furriness. Now, I will say that I am not the only one. There are calendars out there with these behinds. There are countless uh, Instagram reels that I find with people. There are mouse pads that have like these voluminous rear ends. So I I just have to say that if it's deviant behavior, I am not by myself. I am just rejoicing in nature. And how is that any more deviant than, will this let me do this, I wonder, than objectifying this? Which, ooh, look at Dick Grayson, man. And I think this is from Nicola Scott, and this is a summer issue. And I think she calls it like Dick in Shorts. I think that's what it's called, or Dick in a bathing suit, but... Hubba hubba. Donovan was absolutely right that everyone, well, I think I said this, but I am definitely along with Babs, Nightwing, what is my orientation? Nightwing sexual, that's what it is, as I think everyone should be. But anyways, you let me know, what do you think? Is this deviant behavior? Do I need assistance? Or do you also feel like fuzzy bottoms, even pantaloons? People like the little, the pantaloons on the, on the animals. You let me know. Okay, now let's get into business, as they say on the Mulan. I was going to say the Mulan Rouge. We have four issues of Batgirl. I think the other issue with me taking so long to record this is that I just... I just got startled by the image that appeared is that, you know, I, I just wasn't very excited about what I was reading, unfortunately. Okay. Batgirl 37, Thicker Than Water, April 2003, cover date. Writer Kelly Puckett, Pensor Damian Scott, anchor Robert Campanella, colorist Jason Wright, and digital chameleon. David Kane breaks out of prison, delivers a package to Batgirl, and returns to his cell. Batman and Oracle examine the package, and it appears to be simply an ordinary knife. Batgirl realizes this is the day Kane told her was her birthday, and it is a birthday present. Batman reminds her that Kane acquired her on the black market as a baby, and he has no way of knowing what her real birthday is. Oracle alerts Batman to a kidnapping. A wealthy young girl named Jill with a professional art career has been taken from her mother. The mother seems disinterested in the girl's well-being beyond the money she brings in through her gallery openings. Batgirl 
tracks down the kidnapper, a thief named David Sullivan, and is surprised to see that the young girl seems to love him. It's revealed that Sullivan is secretly her father and the girl wants to leave her mother. Sullivan pleads with Batgirl, explaining that he truly loves Jill and only wants what's best for her, even though he's a professional criminal. His actions remind Batgirl of David Kane's behavior, and she has a flashback to Kane giving her the same knife as a present when she was a young girl. Batgirl realizes that David Kane truly is her father, not just a man who purchased her as an infant. She tells Sullivan that it does not matter how much he loves his daughter or she loves him, and she hands Sullivan over to the police. Jill is returned to her unloving but stable mother. That's interesting. Batgirl goes home and uses power tools to try and smash the knife Kane gave her, and she cannot do it. Okay. So... Cover wise is very interesting. We got girl interrupted when it popped up. I was like, whoa, I (laughs) if the squint test is the boobs. (laughs) So that's very interesting. But you can't really tell anything about the actual story from this particular cover. I have to say, I'm even trying to figure out where she is. She's clearly on a grate of some sort, but I don't know. I'm not sure what's going on in the beginning with the timeline. It, it was a bit, ah, uh, you know what? This actually makes a bit more sense now that I'm rereading it after the synopsis. But just the fact that what's David Kane just not, he, he was there. He's not there anymore. And then all of a sudden he walks back. But initially it's kind of confusing without help as to what is going on. I do wonder in regards to this gift and even the knife, whether Baccarol lies to herself about it or it is just a memory that comes later because Babs actually says, does it mean anything to you? Have you seen it before? And Cass says no. And maybe she really doesn't remember. Maybe it's something that is repressed and then it comes forward later on. She needs that moment with David Sullivan and his daughter. And then it it all comes clearly. Maybe it is something that she wants to deny that Kane is her father, because what does that mean? And what does that say about her? I'm not sure. I wonder if Batman is lying to Batgirl or even to himself saying that Kane acquired Cass on the black market. I think it's a strong possibility that he's lying to himself. That would be something that he would not want, right? I mean, it was really hard for him to accept that she was raised an assassin and that she may have murdered someone. She did murder someone. He's got those videotapes like, no, she didn't do it. So this is perhaps something else that he's lying to himself about and lying to himself so much that he's also lying to her. But I think in a, in a protective manner in her case, anyways, I think there might be some uh, just denial attached. Maybe if he is lying to himself, Cass pauses with a statue that she sees. And I do wonder what it is that she sees of the statue. You know, is it that it's a fake? What, what exactly is going on and how does this connect with the story? I like that you see the love between a criminal father and his daughter here. And you see it in two layers of the story, right? You see it with David Sullivan and his daughter, and then you see it with David Kane and Cass, because I think that that knife is not a goading or trolling gift, but actually something, the fact that he remembered her birthday, I think that that does say something. Perhaps he still is exerting some sort of control over her by sending that knife, but I think there's also love, however perverted it may be, from David to his daughter. 
I found it really interesting that Cass says uh, she's holding on to David. He had fallen from the roof and he says, I'm a thief. It's all I know, but I love my daughter more than anything. And she loves me. And he even before had said her mother doesn't love her. And Cass says, I know. And then she says, I know again, it doesn't matter. Does it really not matter? (laughs) Because he still needs to go to jail, and that's because them's the rules. It's it's crazy. Now, remember the definition of a detective from what we've learned from Batman as well as this, this story, this comic book, right, is that this whole thing could have been prevented. But the prevention here is for the little girl never to have been born and thus been used by the mother. So again, you know, Cass is failing. And this is just really interesting. The fact that Cass, like seeing all of this transpire, she ends up giving him over to the police and bringing that girl back to someone that is using her and doesn't love her. I find this really intriguing. And I feel like Cass, of all people, perhaps would not have made this choice. I feel like we've seen other characters in the past that have kind of gone the emotional route rather than the moral or ethical route. And there was that story earlier on, wasn't it? Didn't I have a guest? Yeah. Didn't I have Brian Q. Miller on where we talked about that little boy and his father? You thought the father was one guy, but it was actually the the crazy guy. And yeah, so she has done this in the past kind of letting some things slide, knowing what is better for the person. But here we are. It was a dramatic way for Cass to actually capture this David. Uh, She ends up dropping him out off of a roof. She now knows, right? The toll of being a detective, right? She already knew it in the past. I think this is a completely different toll than we've seen in the the previous issue or storyline. Even Batman sees that she's upset. But hey, Isn't that guy a capital H hypocrite because he lets Catwoman go sometimes (laughs) when he she should be in jail often. So mm -mm -mm. and this that's for what I guess his own personal his own selfish emotions, whereas she could have been given that little girl a good and loving future. And now she's probably going to grow up uh, maybe a bit unstable. I don't know. But without the love of a mother or really with anyone loving her properly in her life, she may not grow up well or perhaps may not understand love at all. So yeah, Cass, it ends with Cass trying to destroy this knife. I, I, I mean, must be made from, you know, Wakanda and just can't be destroyed. It's very interesting. And she ends up just walking away, which is interesting. I mean, certainly taking out her frustrations, I think of what just happened, the case as well as her, maybe her connection with David Kane as well. Crazy. But isn't it sad that that Batman doesn't say happy birthday? He just says, it might not be your birthday. I'm going to give this eight out of 10 hang gliders. And we're going to move on to, oh yes, we're going to move on to Batgirl 38 But I do have to speak a bit about Gotham Knights 37, and I could actually do a whole segment on this, but it's really, this is really not the place. It's really not the place. And I do have to pull up some stuff, I think, from from Donovan, because I demanded to know, am I, because, yeah, you know that I have some biased thoughts on 
Stephanie that I, I do want to protect her. And oftentimes I give her the benefit of the doubt over Batman. And so I really went into Gotham Knights 37 trying to figure out, is it just me? Well, Gotham Knights 37, which is funny because Scott Beatty has written it. And I actually took a picture of something where Steph said Batman's a jerk and Tim agreed with her. And Scott Beatty, who is my friend on Facebook, said, hey, I wrote that. And I said, you sure did. And, you know, Batman sure put Stephanie through the ringer. But in Gotham Knights 37, this is what it says. Uh, when Bruce Wayne was accused of murder, this is the publisher synopsis. Spoilers, training with Batman suddenly ceased. Now having been rejected by the birds of prey, which is strange. Maybe, but it was more Dinah. Dinah said, hey, I don't have time for it, but you are capable. Go out on your own and learn some things. But let's go with rejection. Spoiler wants answers, and she's willing to confront Batman to get them. But when a Cobra terrorist rolls into town, she's thrust into a mission that may well be over her head. Okay. And unfortunately, she yeah, she's literally, I don't know. Is she fired? She's just kicked off the team. And Batman tells Batgirl that spoiler will not be encouraged or trained any longer. So in Gotham Knights 37, Batman gives spoiler two hours to like find this person and solve this issue. But he basically has trapped her into failing. I kid you not. There was no way she was going to get there. And he already had someone set up. It was Rex Mason, Metamorpho, had already been set up in order to get the guy. Like everything was already solved. There was no way she was going to get there. And it was absolutely ridiculous. And I thought to myself, am I reading this incorrectly? I'm really trying not to be biased here. And so I did Facebook message Donovan. And I said, Hey, you know, could you do me a favor and just read, you know, this 37 and tell me if I'm reading it incorrectly? Cause you know, I obviously I have bias against Batman. And he said, Oh yeah, he absolutely set her up 100%. I will say that I think this is 100% in character. Batman's foundation for trust is if he relates to the other person. He related to Dick and Jason. Tim had to earn his trust. Barbara had to earn his trust. And part of that was him taking Jim Gordon in mind. For years and years and years, he straight up did not give Stephanie the benefit of the doubt. And it really would not be the case that he trusted her until she was Batgirl. So crazy, crazy. I, okay. So I'll move on. Like I said, 37, I could do a whole thing with that. That'd be really interesting to talk with Carolyn about that, but let's get into back row 38, which is really the result of this. And we'll talk about it. So this is test line. May, 2003 is the cover date writer Anderson Gabrick. And this is his debut. Penciler Jeff Parker, inker Robert Campanella, colorist Jason Wright, and digital chameleon. So Batman tells Batgirl that Spoiler will not be encouraged or trained any longer. But when Spoiler comes by her Batcave, Batgirl only hesitates for a moment before inviting her inside. They then play rooftop tag, which Batgirl turns into an unofficial training session. Batgirl thinks Batman is being unfair to Spoiler. Whoa, especially since Spoiler's father recently died. Batgirl reveals to Spoiler that Kane is her biological father. Their conversation is interrupted by a turf war between the lady killers and the tiger lilies. Batgirl makes Spoiler promise to stay there while she handles it. But when Spoiler thinks Batgirl is dead, she dives in. But Batgirl isn't dead and she knocks Spoiler out, carries her away, and then finishes with the gangs. Batgirl wakes Spoiler up and admits that she thinks Batman is right. Spoiler angrily tells her that Batman isn't her dad and never will be. Batgirl still wants to be friends, but Spoiler says, and I quote, friends don't turn their backs on each other, end quote, and leaves. 
Okay. So I do like the cover. I think that's pretty cool. Riot Girls, just them leaping down. Also a girl on the back there. Looks like she's pulling down her jeans. Who even knows? But yeah, pretty cool dynamic cover of the two of them. Oh, by Cliff Chang. Wow. Okay. So we find out that spoiler is a, according to Batman and Gotham Knights 37, spoiler is a danger to herself and others. Okay, so that's the thing to keep in mind here. Double standards. Kaz has made mistakes. Batman seems to just have it out for for Steph. So I love the fact that Cass basically disobeys Batman and lets her in, right? Even saying that that it's not fair, right? That he is not fair, which I thought was great. And Steph, you know, they bond they had this fun relationship and then they kind of separated and now to to see them come back together was a lot of there are some great emotions there so then having some fun the training session of course unfortunately Cass has to so here's an example where yes one could say in fact that Steph is a danger to herself and others because she misses something here. She slips and she doesn't catch the roof in time. And then Cass has to save her. So, okay, we're kind of seeing what that possibility there. I like that there is training because that was initially one of the reasons why Steph wanted to hang out with Cass is because she knew she could learn from her. And honestly, uh, I think it's really great to have female camaraderie and a female learning from a female, especially in this particular, you know, masculine driven family. So they're sitting on this rooftop and having this conversation. I thought it was pretty funny that even Steph knew Kane was Cass's father. So Stephanie knows, but Batman is denying it still. That's why I think he's lying to himself. But just the fact that, yeah, they have this shared experience of having these villainous fathers that were not the greatest growing up. Steph talks about giving her baby up for adoption and relating that to wishing that she, in fact, were also adopted, which I think is really powerful. Cass wonders if this is Robin's, which was really funny. And then she considers the fact that she's never been kissed and to be honest, I am actually surprised that Cass even knows about the public affiliation, a.k.a. sex. But I guess she does. I don't know who would have. Barbara? I don't know. Has Barbara taught her about such things? What actually? Who talked to Cass about menstruation? Who would have been there? She was on her own probably at that point in time. Golly. To be a young woman on the streets and all of a sudden you start bleeding for the first time. I wonder, Hmm, that's a good question. And I would like to know, (laughs) I don't know who could tell me though. Okay. So there's this fight. Now we're, we're getting into it, right? We've got this gang war. Cass says, no, you need to stay, which is not the first time that she's done this to Steph. And then, yeah, Cass, it looks like she's out of the fight. And so Steph wants to go and help her. And it gets into some, I mean, she's doing okay, but then, yeah, it's, you were outnumbered initially with Cass and now Steph is outnumbered and Cass has to save her. And she does that whole thing where, which is not the first time again, right? Where she knocks her out to take her out of the fight. 
and then swoops away and then goes back and finishes the job. So uh, some of those times were funny, right? When she knocked her out and did that. And now it's like, man, you can't let, <laughs> like no one can learn from their experiences. And yes, we're in a lethal experience, but you can't keep knocking somebody out. I mean, to relate that to to the real world, you know, if you, I guess I go relate to my my hospital job, if you never allowed me to, I don't know, lift a patient, then I'm never going to learn how, you know, because you're like too worried for something to happen. Then how am I then when there's a dire need and I don't know how, and it's an extreme situation, that's going to be really bad. So there are all these opportunities for learning that were taken away from Stephanie. She really has slash had no agency. And uh, yeah. So she's upset. I, I I can understand being upset. She says, you think he's right, don't you? And Cass says, yes. And, oh, that's, she said, he's not your dad from Batman to Cass. Like, you don't have to listen to him. But yeah, friends don't turn their backs on each other, which is, yeah, it was just very powerful. So then I'm, there's obviously, you know, Steph is feeling betrayed here. I think there could be more direct training. I, I think there could be training with someone who actually cares about her, you know, maybe like Cass. Why not Barbara, right? There are some opportunities here. So if we look at it really literally, yes, she she is a danger to herself and others. She goes down in the thick of things because she is trying to help Cass out and she gets herself in trouble and then kind of getting in the way. Well, I guess in this sense, getting in the way that uh, Cass has to worry about her. So it's a danger to her potentially. So literally, yes, Batman is correct. But I just don't know how you do this, how you how do you get out of that? How do you get out of being a danger to yourself and others when no one's giving you the chance to train and no one's training you or teaching you? They're just brushing you off. I, yeah, I don't understand that at all. And of all the people, you know, Cass could have been, could have been the one motivation doesn't matter because she saw that Cass was in trouble and Steph did what any person would do, right? Who has any bit of training. She went to go help her. A question would be actually because Cass was under that that dog pile. And when Steph came in, she distracted some people. Had she not done that, would Cass actually have been in trouble? And we'll never know. So yeah, just super, super unfun, unfun. I, you know, given, I think it was a, strong story in terms of emotion and and some of the discussions they had. So I'm going to give it an eight out of 10 betrayals. And so now we're going to get into these last two, which I find a bit ridiculous. Maybe I'll like them a bit more as I'm talking, but we are going to do back row 39 and back row 40, which is a nice little arc. Already I'm looking at this cover and thinking, boy, is that ridiculous. Presenting an all new Batgirl question mark. Yeah, look at this cover. Kind of ridiculous where you've got Batgirl clearly confused and there's a bikini there and it looked like it was a gift from somebody and you can tell it's on a boat. So at least you can tell what this story is about. Okay, Batgirl 39, Black Wind, June 2003, writer Dylan Horrocks, writer of Hicksville. 
Pantor, Adrian Seabar, Inker, Andy Owens, chorus Jason Wright, and Digital Chameleon. Batgirl takes down a group of terrorists in Gotham City. Their leader introduces himself as a metahuman named Black Wind, who is able to easily block her attacks. Black Wind tells Batgirl that she is magnificent, and he would give anything to see her face. Batgirl is confused by this, and she allows Black Wind's group to escape. Later in Gotham Clock Tower, Batman chastises Batgirl for letting them go. Batgirl simply says that he wouldn't fight. Oracle does research and learns that Black Wind is part of an anti-government faction called the Sakuri Lions in Tarakstan. The Sakuri, I wonder if it's Sakuri, Lions are in Gotham pursuing Vilam Namali, one of Tarakstan's wealthiest business tycoons. Batgirl apologizes for letting them go and leaves to work out in the hollow room. Oracle reprimands Batman for being so hard on Batgirl, aka a jerk, and insists that the girl needs a vacation. Batman says that Batgirl is hiding something from them about her encounter with Black Wind. Batman pays for Batgirl and Oracle to vacation on a cruise liner. Oracle buys Batgirl a bikini, which Batgirl wears very reluctantly. Batgirl has difficulty relaxing and prefers to spend her time in the gym. Oracle encourages her to flirt with a young man named Carl Kent whom Batgirl recognizes as Superboy in disguise. Batgirl is extremely uncomfortable feeling sexualized, aka objectified, in her skimpy bikini. That night at dinner, they learn that Vilam Namali and his bodyguard Ludo are passengers on the same cruise liner. Batgirl disappears in the middle of the meal. Yikes. Okay. So... I don't even know what to say. Okay. So Batgirl lets this violent black wind go, but not the thief who loves his daughter. How does that make sense? Cass, you are a hypocrite. (laughs) Oh, okay. The synopsis, thank you to DC Wikia for all these synopses, but certainly gives us more than I think we get from the actual issue. But it does. I would also intuit that she is uncomfortable and that's why she lets him go. But I don't think we really get there until her conversation with Barbara about feeling objectified and like not knowing what that feeling is. And why do I feel a bit squeamy over it? But it's interesting. She gets in trouble with that. And She doesn't say what he said. And it's interesting that, you know, Bruce and I need to have a talk is basically like, you know, go on, Castlet mom and dad talk for a bit. Uh, It's interesting. We find out here that she is 18. Yeah, an 18 year old girl who's out of her depth is what Barbara says. A lonely child with a lot of bad memories and a life full of pain. She needs a break, Bruce, a real holiday with normal people, a chance to do some growing up. Spoiler, though, even though it seems like he's being kind and giving them that vacation, he knew he had ulterior motives because he knew that uh, Black Wind was going to be there. So, yeah, it's just pretty interesting that that Batman sees something more in the interaction between Black Wind and Cass and Oracle sees his previous orders not to tussle with a metahuman and a girl who's out of her depth and she just needs a break. So it's the different perspectives and how they're coming together about their shared daughter is really quite interesting. And so they get a cruise. You know, I think that they'd have an argument, which right here about the gym and stop spending time and here have this skimpy bikini. You'd think that they'd have this argument in the clock tower, but Barbara has somehow already convinced her to get on the boat. So it's a bit late to be like, I don't want to be on this boat. I do wonder what Babs is wearing. So her hair is decent, uh, Professor Allen, but the 
I I guess it's just uh what is that off the shoulder uh, dress of some sort, which is very interesting. Why not? Why isn't she wearing a bikini? Why are you forcing a bikini on someone else and you're not willing to wear one? I don't know. I don't know. Going to have weird tan lines there, Babs. I knew right away that uh, the quote, even Bruce has a life outside the cave was bad example. She says, what? What is it like? His life. Mm, bad example. Yeah. Why would you bring up Bruce? He barely has a life outside the cave. And his life is, I guess, just boozing and schmoozing and sleeping around babes. So is that really the example that you want to set? I don't know why they're they're not playing regular volleyball. They're using this ginormous ball that could probably take anyone out or give a concussion, which is pretty crazy. I don't know. Oh, this bikini. I wish you guys could see, but it is skimpy, scandalous. Cue the the recess girls when they say that scandalous. But seriously, I'm wondering why Barbara thought it a good idea to buy that bikini for Cass's first bathing suit. Good heavens. Uh, I don't know how Carl, aka Superboy, afforded a ticket on this cruise. Actually, I think we find out later on, but it just does seem a bit suspect. Cass gets the first, uh, look at this. Look at, I wish you could see. I wish you could see. It makes me uncomfortable. But anyways, she gets the first feeling of, yeah, being sexualized, being objectified and the male gaze and she doesn't like it. And hey, why not? <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's it's interesting to have a comic character and, and this type of comic character, you know, who doesn't really deal with boys, have that experience and try to vocalize her feelings on it and, and what is it and everything. So when he looks at me, you know exactly what he's thinking and feeling. Yeah, it makes me feel bad, right? Because you can read. And then Babs owns it and says, I should never have made you wear that damn bikini. And then, of course, at the the bottom, we're pairing, I should have never made you wear that damn bikini with this really sexualized image of Cass with the wind blowing and a shirt. But the shirt is open. You can, you know, see everything. So I don't know. At the dinner, it seems like Cass and, yeah, they are. Cass and Babs are imbibing because she does, Babs orders some expensive champagne. Cass is only 18. I don't know where they are. Are they in international waters? But that seems irresponsible. Okay. I, it's kind of weird. I, I think perhaps the most interesting message is just about the male gaze you know, for an 18-year-old and then for an 18-year-old with zero sexual experience or experience with boys with the exception of Tim Drake and Batman. So yeah, kind of interesting. I don't know. It's kind of more hammy than I, I would think most Batgirl issues are. I'm giving it a seven out of 10 scandalous bikinis. I almost wonder if that's too high and maybe it should be like a six and a half out of 10 as I'm going through this. So no, I did not like it more. I probably liked it less as I was going through. And then our final one, which finishes off that part of the storyline. We'll see what happens, of course, and whether there's a shipper. Man, I really w- I wonder if I randomly tweeted a writer or creator of, of Cass here and asked them about Cassandra's first period 
and who taught her about that, what they would say. Okay, so this is Batgirl 40, Little Bat. July 2003 is the cover date. Writer Dylan Horrocks, penciler Adrian Seabar, anchor Andy Owens, colorist Jason Wright, and digital chameleon. Oracle angrily calls Batman when she realizes he manipulated her, and Batgirl Badger strikes again. The crew, gosh, this whole episode is about Badger, isn't it? The cruise ship they were sent on is not a vacation. Bilal Namali is their fellow passenger, a man targeted by the suckery lion terror cell. Oracle takes her revenge by telling Batman that Superboy is also on board and a romance is developing between Superboy and Batgirl. Batman is not pleased. Some leeway there. Romance is blossoming. I mean, it does in the end, spoiler, but... Mm, okay. Oracle encourages Superboy to flirt with Batgirl. Heavens. Batgirl learns that the terrorist Blackwind is on board, who recognizes her at a costume. They share a moment together in the moonlight. Blackwind does not understand how Batgirl can protect a war criminal like Namali. Batgirl insists that she seeks justice. She's a detective, right? She's trying to prevent things. Blackwind seeks vengeance. Blackwind leaves to hunt down Namali. Batgirl follows him by ripping her fancy dress into a ninja mask. And, you know, the panties are on full display. Sockery lions gather the passengers in one room at gunpoint and begin recording Black Wind. Black Wind explains that the Sockery people are peaceful, but they have been oppressed by the Tarakstan government for too long. He accuses Namali of slaughtering an entire village to secure the oil underneath and announces Namali's execution. Superboy arrives in costume to stop Blackwind. There is a massive gunfight and Batgirl deals with the terrorists. It's revealed that Namali's bodyguard Ludo is a metahuman, part of the same Soviet research laboratory that produced Blackwind. Superboy realizes that Batgirl is the girl he was flirting with earlier and notes that he only recognizes her with a mask on. Batgirl and Superboy take on Ludo. Ludo charges through the ship, taking Batgirl and Blackwind into the water with him. Ludo drowns. Batgirl is able to secure Blackwind until Superboy arrives. The ship docks. Oracle insists that they take a real vacation next. Batgirl refuses as she simply wants to go home. Superboy approaches Batgirl and gives her his number, asking if she can call him in Smallville. Superboy feels flustered talking to the dark, mysterious Batgirl, and she simply kisses him. Okay. Does this show what we... (laughs) I guess kind of a guy in a Hawaiian shirt, bloody fist. Nah, I take it back because it looks like we're in a, is this the right issue? <laughs> this feels like I'm in a wrong issue here. It looks like a cityscape back row brings a pain, bloody fists. And yeah, this would be misleading. Okay. I do like this, you know, Batman's a troll. So Barbara's going to troll him right back <laughs> like that. I don't know what Barbara Gordon is doing. I would advise against it, but honestly, yeah, I'm sure she would love to go dancing or something. Maybe what? what? She just had Cass just had a conversation with you about how uncomfortable she feels. Why are you pushing this on her and not having a conversation about birds and bees or like these sorts of feelings? That's Barbara. I am upset with you. Okay. So I do wonder about this Ty Darshan and how close an age to Cass he is. I thought he was older. Perhaps he is older, but closer than I originally thought. I don't get the impression that he is close to her in age when we first saw him. But now it's like, oh, are they trying to de-age him? So it seems like 18 and 18 seems okay. I'm not sure. But yeah, there's, there's certainly some, I think, 
some shipping there. And again, it's just like the images on the page point to that male gaze, right? But it also is like, look at how naive she is. She's not thinking about the fact that the wind is pulling her skirt slash dress up. But that's just who she kind of is. Man, that's crazy. Oh, don't touch me. Heck, heckity heck. You know what I want. Man alive. It's like reading a romance comic, but it's just entirely inappropriate. (sighs) Costume change, right? I get the mask, but also you've ripped up material of the skirt when you didn't have too much of a skirt to begin with. And now your panties are going to be on full display. Aye, aye, aye. Okay. Like Darsham, I, I certainly am confused as to what Cass is doing and what why is she going after the people that she's going after and not these other people. I guess she's just trying to take them all down because they're all in the wrong. But uh, it really seems like the terrorists are legally the ones that are in the wrong. So, again, I've I've got this confusing of like, what are you doing and how does this compare to a couple issues ago when you only focused on the the legal side of things? Not sure. So some of this art certainly makes it seem like she's eating the fabric. I wonder if I can see that when she's talking. Yeah, kind of like that, right? Put me down. It's like she's sucking in the mask. I don't know. Can she breathe? Who knows? The fight goes on. You know, it's it's a decent fight. Batgirl and Superboy first team up. Oh, yeah, right there. We can see her lips. It's very bizarre. Mm. Yeah, it's fine. I think you can tell that I'm just like not up on like, yes, yeah, is great. It's it's fine. I think that the fight scene was pretty good. Yeah, no more vacations. I think that is what we have learned. I don't know why she kisses Superboy. It doesn't seem like it's out of attraction, given that she sees Darshan, who's down there, right? She sees him watching her. Plus, since we know that she doesn't have any romantic experiences, she told Steph a couple issues ago, it seems like a violent kiss for a first kiss. I personally would not be grabbing somebody and uh, smooching them if it were the first kiss. And then that's the first first kiss. So that's even more strange. And again, Barbara did not instruct her on any of these things. Now, it could be an off panel end, which is what I hate. But is she just kissing this guy to be like, you know, you mean nothing to me? I'm going to kiss this person or is is it to make him jealous? Is it like she's got kind of these romantic feelings, but she's decided to displace them and put them on his name's not Connor Carl. Who knows? Do we ever learn why she let Darshan go in the previous issue? I, even though the synopsis kind of says, I don't know, you know, was she convinced of his reasons and his people's plight? I don't think that makes sense now because of course she takes everybody down. Was she put off by a sexual desire and forwardness as too flustered to do anything or even understand why she was feeling that way? It seems likely, but I just feel like it's really the optics are so bad looking at this issue compared to the issue with David Sullivan. I really do not understand. She was uncomfortable in that issue as well. She knew that he loved his daughter. And yet she's like, I'm so sorry, you've got to go. So what? Uh, I don't know. This guy being a skis to you, that's even more reason to get him arrested, but whatever. I frankly, you know, if she feels uncomfortable, is Cass really the type to let someone walk away and get away with it? Why did she not just haul off and hit him? I don't know. I don't really understand this, Cassandra. I don't really recognize her. I'm confused. 
she's confused. Barbara should have helped with that confuzzlement. Who knows? And yeah, I just finished off by saying a weird arc, and I'm not sure what it achieves. What do we learn here besides reinforcing that Batman is a jerk? Which did we need that? No, but here we are. Or is it just to push Cassandra forward sexually? And how much does she know? This is crazy. This is like saying, you know, abstinence is the only policy. And then kids don't know anything about anything. Um, It's problematic. Think about poor Daphne. It looks like this romance continues, by the way, since it says next issue, world's finest romance, question mark. Daphne Bridgerton. I was trying to think, is that actually her name? Daphne Bridgerton, when she marries Simon, Basically knows nothing, knows nothing, doesn't know what Simon's doing with his, I'm going to say it. Am I going to get blocked for all these? I said the S word sex. She doesn't know why he's ejaculating into other like cloth and things like that. Not into her. Her mother didn't tell her anything. And she had to go to a maid and say, just tell me everything about and then she learns, of course, of what is actually happening. And there's just so much danger when you are not telling the other person information. I think that the concern is, and I guess it's a valid concern, right? That when you're telling somebody this information, now their eyes are open to it and they're going to be looking for it. Now there's going to be temptation there. But the flip side is if you don't tell them anything, they can be taken advantage of. And uh, now they're in trouble because you didn't teach them about what sex actually is. And now perhaps you have a pregnant teen or someone who has been assaulted or uh, perhaps they have a venereal disease because they weren't using protection. So while I do approve of abstinence, I don't think it can be abstinence only. I think you have to say, hey, abstinence is a good thought. But here are, here are the facts, though. So you know that if you're getting into a situation and also going through kind of common refrains, why do I always talk about I feel like I constantly am bringing up sexual assault on this podcast now. I don't know why, but here we go. But if you're also teaching common refrains that men and, you know, also put out their women may use in order to shame you into having sex with them. And that still is counting as rape and because you're, you're cajoling someone into doing it and it's not 100% with their consent. So I don't know what sort of lessons Barbara had. I don't know if because we, and this is, could be a, a sexist thing for me to say, but because we have a male writer, he maybe didn't feel comfortable going into that. But how are you going to stand there when a, a young woman, 18 years old, who has been objectified for the first time, says how uncomfortable that made her feel? You lean into that discomfort and like, yeah, you should flirt with her. The bikini, of course, didn't help matters. I don't know why Barbara did that in the first place. And at least she regretted it and have no discussion. Did the writer really not? That could have been a really powerful moment for mother to daughter where, you know, father has all these life lessons on the streets, but mother should be the one having these frank emotional, uh, sexual body conversations because she never had that. So I don't know. I gave it seven out of 10 violent slash first time smooshes, but I feel like it should be a six and a half, just like the other one. So there we go. My last thing is listener emails. Melta. 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 
Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. And I believe I just have one from my Earth 2 BFF, Shana, regarding episode 220. Hi, Stella. I think your point about the influence of fandom is right on, and I think it is those with the loudest voices that often have the most sway, for better or for ill, as you so perfectly put it. I would add that I don't think it is necessarily a matter of morality, though, just a difference in opinion. People come to these stories and characters at different points in their lives and bring with them their own unique experiences. It creates preferences in people. For instance, I think Gail Simone writes the best version of Barbara Gordon, both as Batgirl and Oracle, but I know other people, (laughs) I know other people feel differently. Like you, I don't feel compelled to bully or shame anyone for it. And I think that is because I recognize it as just a difference in opinion and not as a moral stance. Not to mention, at least for me, part of the fun is having these discussions with people whose opinions diverge from my own. And I will echo what you have said here, too. I don't think Clunan and Conrad have a wrong interpretation of Stephanie. I just think it is a less informed version, which is why I'm so curious to hear more about their plans for Batgirls. I want to know more about what their influences are and just what exactly these characters mean to them. Moving on. In my last email, when what I should have said was inexperienced instead of younger when describing the target audience for Batgirls. It seems to me that one of the main purposes of the narration boxes is to tell readers how to feel about certain characters and events in the story, a tactic often used when writing to an inexperienced reader who is still learning the ropes of following a story. Whether it is actually accomplishing that or not, who knows? I'm not an ex- inexperienced reader nor inexperienced experience with these characters so i can't say one way or the other yeah i can't either i think that's our issue of course is that we have experience with them and we are not objective when it comes to that and it's an i think that's an interesting point and that certainly could be true the unfortunate part is because i appreciate the training that goes back to you know what i was talking about with steph i do wonder when you're doing that though you're guiding people on how to think where where is the space for the reader to kind of figure it out on their own or make their own judgment calls? So in a way, I wonder if those narration boxes say it's like our way or the highway, like this is what's going on. This is what you should feel. Anything else is incorrect, which takes out there's the intent, the author's intent. Regardless, I don't think the narration boxes add anything. Otherwise, yeah, same. I find myself ignoring them too. <laughs> I think there might be an attempt for the narration boxes to hotwire connection between us and the characters, but I'd rather just let the characters themselves show me who they are and develop a connection with them over time. Long-term plotting, a lost art I know. For example, I don't think the commentary regarding Cass and the zombie movies did anything but annoy me. (laughs) Why was it necessary for me (laughs) to know that as the reader, what does that tell me about Cass? By the end of the page, I felt like the narrator was trying to endear me to Cass for a mutual love of zombie movies i think that scene would have been much more impactful without a novel's worth of narration trying to tell me what to think in about in that scene though i do have a pretty strong bias against zombies and zombie related pop culture so maybe i'm not being fair well i know a lot of people who are not uh, about the zombies i'm okay on the zombies it depends i mean obviously i've grown to love resident evil And uh, mainly through the characters, I think if I had not met Claire Redfield, I would not love it as much. 
But, and, you know, I've done my walking dead, but I don't like the flesh ripping slash eating the nom nom nomming. And that's the point of the zombies. So it seems very strange, but it's more about like the characters around and, and the stories and things. I feel like all I have done is be negative. So I will attempt to balance it out by saying that I did love seeing Bab suit up, even though she very poorly chose to suit down before going to Dante's agreed. And I also re- really enjoyed seeing Bab step and Cass's interactions in issue five. I'm pretty curious to see what happens sex issue and how everything will wrap up. I think this arc will definitely be worth a reread once it is finished. All the best, Shana. P.S. <laughs> a Daria reading list would be epic. Yeah. Woo. Yeah, I guess it was last episode I talked about that. But some of them, it's so hard, especially with that animation style, which it's 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 cruder and i don't mean that to be rude but just like i think they even you know there's criticism on that and i think the the creators know but i think that's what makes daria daria so if they were to ever update that which i i honestly hope that they don't i just wouldn't want it to be really posh and clean so sometimes the point was sorry that sometimes it is difficult to see what she is reading and so it would be really hard to make that reading list but definitely mr o'neill's english class which is insane they must read i don't oh maybe 50 books a year it it was kind of crazy all the the books and what they're talking about so that would be the way i guess if you just every time mr o'neill you see him and he's talking about a book or you see on the board, you could do that. I think I've been through probably a lot of them. There might be a couple of Shakespeare that he he mentioned that I haven't, but yeah, I did the Dharma bomb, which I'll talk about later, Dharma bombs and the Kurt Vonnegut ones. But it'd be interesting to see like, oh, what other ones that I've never heard of are on this list? So maybe, I think it would require another watch through and I'd have to pause and write everything down unless maybe online someone has already done it. Okay, thanks for writing in, Shana. Remember, if you want to write in, you can just email me at backworldoracle at gmail.com or YouTube comments pop up. And also, if you want to comment on the actual episode on the Batman universe, I should get pings there. And then tweets will also come through if you're tweeting to me. So there are many ways to get in touch with me, and I'll be happy to read out those emails and and comments and things. It's nice to have a dialogue because I've been alone for a little bit. So it's nice to be like, oh yeah, there are people still, you know, (laughs) with me. Okay. Well, I'm going to take a break. Good heavens. This was a long first part. When I come back, I'm going to cover some modern quickies. I think it's mainly just Nightwing. I'll briefly talk about Urban Legends and a full review of the finale of the first arc, Batgirls number six. But first, Zias's Radio Hour featuring All Comes Crashing by Metric. See you soon. Just makes it harder to think straight Starting over after it breaks Starting over when the story's got an astounding twist You better turn that page When push it comes to shove We do not fall out of love 
Welcome back. I did remember something about my New York City trip because I just checked my Facebook messages and Donovan had sent Harry and I in a group chat a blind bag of Cowboy Bebop, the anime, little figures that you can attach. And I there were. Do you know? Have I spoken of this? I think so. Yes. Well, my shipper spotlights how Uran 
High School Host Club is one of my favorite anime. And they had some of those blind bags and I just wanted Haruhi. And I was groping those bags and I thought, okay, you know, let's do it. And Donovan was very kind. He said, I'll get one too. So we have, you know, you can have two chances. And I said, okay, that's very kind. So I groped, 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 bought it. I opened it up and I got myself a Haruhi. Very cute. I saw it was lovely. Donovan gave me a big old hug. He knew, he was, he knew I was excited. Okay. So we are going to do some modern stuff. So I do want to first say that I did read the Urban Legends because it was part two of the Bir- Birds of Prey in quotation marks story. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Katana doesn't buy what Lady Shiva is selling for a second about the new Birds of Prey. And she's going to let her know personally is the synopsis there it's i i don't have too much to say i i felt like not a lot happened i think i'm just reading it because it says birds of prey and i wonder if this is going to develop into something else but if this is the backdoor pilot i'm not really interested so take that for what it's worth okay here we go everyone's favorite nightwing This is Nightwing 92, The Battle for Bloodhaven's Heart. Writer Tom Taylor, Bruno Redondo is the artist, Adriano Lucas is the colorist. I think I initially didn't, even though with the squint test, it's mostly Nightwing, but the red's back there. And I was like, oh, that's Heartless and Blockbuster. I didn't even notice, but pretty cool cover per usual. Okay. So I wanted to say that Donovan gets review copies in advance and he had texted me that I should ask my audiences. Well, he says, who is Batman wanting to fire? Question mark, question mark, question mark, all caps. And he gives me five options. Dick Grayson slash Robin, Barbara Gordon slash Backroll, Alfred Pennyworth slash Butler, (laughs) all of the above, none of the above. Now, Twitter polls, only give you four options. So I did not do the none of the above because we, of course, know that that's not an option, really. So 14% of people, zero, okay, 0% said Dick Grayson, 14% said Barbara, 7% said Alfred, and 79% said all of the above. Now, I'm totally on board, all of the above. But two people, because I did the calculations, two people were just plain trolls. I'll find out who you are. You did this to me on purpose because you said Barbara and no one said Dick. And that is ridiculous. Let's get into it. So I'll ask this to you, kind listeners. After you, I guess, read this issue, you can write in and let me know whom do you think Batman is wanting to to fire. So first of all, I love the coloring on this, just that it makes it look super vintage. But yeah. Oh, man. So Robin is told to stay out of it. Don't engage. Robin engages. So first firing, bam. That's why you trolled me because you he should have been fired. He disobeyed a direct order. Okay. And then he gets himself into trouble. Oh boy, I'm having some deja vu to the first part of this podcast where the same thing happened with Cass. So Batgirl sees this. She's calling out to him. Batman says, help is coming. Stay where you are in an aggressive tone. She can't do it. So she ends up leaping to happen. So technically she disobeyed and she should be fired, but it's Robin's fault. So he should be doubly fired because he puts himself and others in danger. Ha ha. That's hypocrisy because Steph does that. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Okay. 
let's continue on. Then all of a sudden, <gasps> Alfred appears out of nowhere to help. He is in the thick of things, into the thick of things. He gets, he throws some sort of gas bomb. I don't understand how the gas, he's got a gas mask on, but Backrow and Robin don't, but they're okay. But anyways, the gangs dissipate. There's some rioting. And then after that's a fire in right there because he also intervenes. And then Batman arrives and he says, you know, Alfred, I told him not to engage. Alfred is just super calm as a cucumber. Step aside, Alfred. And then Alfred disobeys and he says, no, we could have lost him tonight. And I know that scares you. But for once, you are not to turn your fear into misplaced anger. You can direct as much fury toward me as you need to. But Master Richard is hurt. He needs comfort, not as monitoring. Take off the cowl and leave your disapproval at the door. Do not enter. So he should also be doubly fired because he disobeyed his employer and did not step aside. Oh, he should be triply because he disobeyed. And then he also disrespected him by saying, you need to not be a jerk, basically. And then, of course, at the very beginning, he leapt into that action. But we do see that there is a kind little thing there. Oh, Dick apologizes. Bruce says you don't have to be sorry. So he is able to. So probably all of the above. But again, I tell you that somebody trolled me. Two people trolled me. I'm not certain, but I believe that one of those trolls could have been Donovan. And who even knows some other person? So, yeah, but that that was I really like that just because it gives us a sense of the rest of this issue of that he's always got to try, even if it's a really dire situation. And it just points to I think this whole run with Tom Taylor is just really getting to maybe relearn who Dick Grayson is. And I think his heart is just really at the center of of these stories here. Uh, we do see. Uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez pizza and they appear right there, which is great. And yeah, Bruce actually is not a jerk for the most part. And here they show up for this inaugural opening of this park. There's a nice little thing there. I completely forgot. So here's Blockbuster. Sorry, I completely forgot to give the synopsis of this. But anyways, Blockbuster and his sister, there's some threats. Superman comes because now they've got, you know, a friendly relationship. And he gets (laughs) Barbara, Barbara trolling. I think that's the word of the podcast, trolling Blockbuster and saying, you know, are you going to ask him for a selfie too with Superman. And then, of course, there's uh, some stuff going down later on. I don't know what shirt Barbara is wearing. It seems like it it says I killed something with an O.M. I wish I knew what shirt that was, but some really awesome splash pages occur. And uh, of course, you know, Blockbuster, that's pretty awesome how they kind of do this uh, telescoping effect of panels but blockbuster had sent these guys to basically mess up this park and then nightwing uh, gets on that and then at the very end basically heartless appears and you i was thinking oh man he's going to kill blockbuster because he doesn't want anyone to have nightwing but himself but actually he's uh he has a proposal okay so let's get into the main event shall we and that is bad girls Number six, one way or another, part six. Writers Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, artist George Corona, colorist Sarah Stern. 
We begin with Spellbinder painting a portrait, one of many, of Babs as she is tied up. He goes through a verbal manifesto, how he got to where he is today, and the fact that he uses brush strokes in tandem with a strain of fear gas altered to affect memory, thus triggering vivid flashbacks. Stephanie can attest to this, so he says, and he actually uses her name, Stephanie. He admits to controlling Tudor and that he aims to control society through its most powerful people. Just as he says that, Babs will be his masterpiece. She cuts through her ropes with a batarang and springs for him. Hopefully the joke of them never being official, dies as he gets pummeled to the ground. And actually, she's pretty ruthless, which I will show that later on. Meanwhile, across town at Arkham, Stephanie speaks some big truths while she takes down Tudor, and I guess she thinks his scars are cool, which is a bit weird. On the roof, Grace O'Halloran is still reporting, and Cass rethinks taking on all those brainwashed citizens below. Grace slips, and Cass catches her, landing inside amidst the Tudor-Steph fight. Tudor <laughs> calls upon the brainwashed and Steph and Cass work together to tie them up. Okay. Back with Babs as Oracle, she unmasks Bellbinder on a live stream, outing his plans and actions and gives an uplifting speech to the citizens. Oracle has an antitoxin she will deliver to Arkham and Cass and Steph go after Tudor, who now has a bomb vest. Through a miracle of costuming, Cass rips the vest from his body and Steph drives Bondo and the bomb vest towards the river saying, I love you, to Babs and Cass before she explodes. That's right. Steph is D-E-D dead. The next day, Cass is in mourning and Babs tries to offer comfort over the death of Bondo. Woo! The girls come together talking about their wounds and bonding that they all have some, but at least they have each other, that they all have some wounds, but yeah. Grace reports on Spellbinder and the heroism of the back girls, perhaps bringing them back from their bad reputation. Suddenly, Seer interrupts their bonding time digitally and in person, and she needs their help. Next, break-in at the Iceberg Lounge. Okay, so looking at this cover pretty interesting at least we're on equal footing in terms of heads and not much bodies it is interesting the portraits that he has i guess we're just showing all of the all of the cast so spellbinder is in front we have some of the neighbors i'm not sure who this dude is down here who kind of looks like a miniature kingpin we have actual spellbinder dante and then we do oh fido five yeah where is fido five in this that's a good question where did he go and we had grace and staff and um the serial killer old man neighbor and another member of the saints so eh. okay let us begin i do wonder as he's going through his manifesto and saying that Steph actually, you know, Steph has seen the or felt the experience of this brainwashing. Is that a slip on the part of the writers or was that intentional? And does that mean that if it is intentional, that he actually knows that Stephanie and Batgirl are the same? And if he knows that, how does he know the connection between Steph and Babs? And if 
clearly he he knows there's a connection because he says, you know, Stephanie knows. Dot, dot, dot. Otherwise, why would you do that? It's like the insurance thing of like, nobody knows who that is. Yeah, you want to do that unless somebody knows who that is. And then does he know that Babs is Batgirl slash Oracle? So a bunch of questions. And unfortunately, they do not get answered, though she does pretty outwardly use a battering and beat him up. So one plus one equals two. Maybe he's putting it together. But Jim Gordon took a very long time to <laughs> realize that his daughter was Batgirl. So, okay. So he explains, you know, that he reaches out to people to get their portraits, right? And so, and this is how they're brainwashed. So if this is what has happened, I am confused how he could get thousands and thousands of citizens to come and sit for portraits. Did Steph sit for one? When did that happen? Because I feel like it's connected with the selfie she took way back. I don't know if that was issue one or two. I think it was one because I think no, it must have been two because Tom was on. And I remember we talked about that. But fear gas doesn't work digitally, does it? So this is like my disconnect of like, okay, it makes sense with what you're doing, the fear gas and the brush strokes, but you have to be in person for this to work. It's not going to be transmitted digitally. And then when was Steph? We've seen Steph at all times. When did she sit for a portrait? So some of these things don't make sense in this particular issue. Mm. At one point during the monologue, which I think I will show Uh, The home of Charles Dante, a.k.a. Spellbinder. Keep him talking. Villains love monologuing. This page here, I thought, oh, wow, is Babs the purple box? Kind of like there was that reveal back in, was it Gotham Knights? Where someone was journaling and you're like, who's the journalist? And then it turns out that it's like Bruce of disconnected Bruce Wayne or something, like a third person that's inside his body. So I thought, oh, wow. But then it doesn't make sense with the other issues. And then the remainder of this issue doesn't make sense. So there was a moment I thought, oh, maybe it's Babs, but I really don't think so. And if someone says it is, you will need to provide evidence with your claim. Talking about with with this, with Steph and Tudor really going at it again, the, the whole your scars are cool. It's it's everything else I don't like about you. I thought was uh, pretty interesting, this interaction. And I think it goes further to prove what Donovan has made a claim that this is Stephanie's arc right? It's the back rolls arc, but really she coming into her own as well. But I love this, that I've always been an outsider. No one programmed me. I'm broken and I'm perfectly okay with that. And that's what I think is a message that is, it's great for Stephanie, especially coming from some of these things that I've read in the first half of this episode. Oh, and then she says, I like me. And then it's also, it's it's great messaging, I think, for young women and girls that are reading this and just in general, especially, especially in this age of social media where we cultivate these perfect images and people post on Instagram, you know, perfect <laughs> portraits and you don't see all the messiness, but that we all are broken human beings and we work with that brokenness and we do have to find a way to like and love ourselves and move on for that. And, and in some cases, and in off, oftentimes I would say that brokenness makes us stronger, right? Because we are living with something, but we're getting up every day and we're living. So I do really like that. I thought that that was pretty powerful. I also like at the very end 
where they're talking about their wounds, right? Everyone feels so broken right now. It's easy to believe someone else has all the answers, like someone else can teach you how to feel okay. That's Steph. Bab says, some people's wounds don't heal. They aren't beyond hope, but they don't always get the help they need. And then Cass says, I understand that. I have wounds. Steph says, same. And then Bab says, yeah, me too. But at least I have you is what Cass says. So yeah, they all have each other. They all have shared trauma to a certain extent. They've got these wounds. But I think that those wounds make them stronger women, stronger role models, stronger heroes. And it's great that they can bond over that. So I do really like that. Back to, of course, this guy. I felt like... (sighs) It was a bit anticlimactic. I mean, Babs, go Babs, right? For taking him down easily and viciously, I would say. She is pounding his face into the floor. Then, of course, she uses Oracle to spread the word. But there was all the, this is what I mean by being anticlimactic. There was all this buildup for Tudor. And then we find out that the real mastermind is Spellbinder. He takes Babs as a hostage. But then she's able to release herself, which, again, go Babs after the monologue. And then she, I would say, rather easily takes him down. Look at that. It's pretty violent. Uh, But I mean, go bad. like she was dosed with something. And then which is interesting because remember, she was knocked out in the previous. So how is it so easy to knock her out before? But here she's got a dose of some toxin and she's still kicking. There's just some inconsistencies here. But I don't know. It's just like I feel like Tudor was the main threat up to the end, even up to the end, because he was the one closest to taking the back rolls down from the inside and from the outside. He was able to manipulate Steph. I guess maybe Spellbinder had a hand in that. But then he's got like multiple plans prepared, you know, the the bomb vest and, and all of that stuff. But here Spellbinder is like the mastermind. And it seems like it was seated and he's been along, he's been around for a while getting everything all prepped, but eh, I, I don't really see it as a, as a real big bad guy. I don't think the threat was there as much as perhaps it should have been the bomb vest, which I found pretty funny, not the bomb vest itself, but <sighs> look at how she rips it off. Bomb. No, 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 no. There's that's almost comical, like a cartoon where like someone's clothes gets ripped off. She just I I don't know. There's no other way to say it. She rips that thing off in a way that it should not have been able to be ripped off. So, oh, well, I think what uh, Steph has to say during the fight with Tudor and the bonding at the end are the two biggest takeaways from this particular issue. And it's interesting with all that has transpired with Steph and her development over this arc and bringing her low, bringing her high, you know, could you imagine if she had, which is crazy image there, if she had died, right? I love you over and out. Could you imagine if they killed Stephanie Brown off at this juncture? That is insane but yeah i like how it's she it is she who does it she gets the best she goes into bondo and i guess she does like a last minute ditch and lets bondo of course explode and take the the vest and everything but she gets it i think she finally i don't think she needed the acceptance from the others but i think she finally accepts herself and is like yeah actually i am a worthwhile member of this team so 
those are some positive aspects to this arc, whereas there are other confusing aspects that aren't really answered. So I think that's most, and they kind of keep you going. I knew something was suspicious because Cass is really broken up, but Barbara's okay. And it is good to have like one person who's somewhat emotionally solid for another person to lean on in certain times. But I don't think Barbara would be able to do this because these young ladies are at times her responsibility. Okay. Hopefully they're finally broken up for reals this time. And then, yeah, so see her popping in. You know, what could Seer possibly want and why would she or they, we still don't know the gender or he, expect the team to help? I don't know. I I can only imagine what's going to happen, but I don't trust it. And those ladies better not trust it either. Okay. I think, you know, it was okay. It was okay. I was I was looking for a big bang at the end. I think this arc certainly got better towards the end, but. I would say that I need to give it, you know, back rolls in general longer and more grace just for them to to get their footing and and fully understand these characters. So some good character beats in this issue. Anticlimactic spelt with spellbinder. I think Tudor is probably the big bad in my opinion. And there are still some things I just don't understand. <laughs> I the the portraits. I don't think those necessarily make sense. And then also how much Dante knows because having all of that information could be disastrous for the girls. So I don't know if that was a slip and the writers didn't catch it or didn't think it through, but there's a lot riding on that sort of information for sure. I'm going to give this eight out of 10 cup nudes. I think I forgot to grade it as cup nudes last time. Okay, so winding down, first off, I've got my anime watch list, and technically it is an anime, even though it is DC-related. I watched, because it popped on HBO Max, I thought, oh, why not? Catwoman Hunted, which came out in 2022, pretty recently, an hour and 18 minutes, and it was written by Greg Weissman, and there was actually an interview where he had stated something like the events here happened alongside some of the events that were going on in Young Justice as if they were in continuity. So it's very interesting. So let's see. The little synopsis is false Catwoman in an attempt to steal a priceless jewel. This puts her squarely in the crosshairs of both a powerful consortium of villains, Interpol and Batwoman. They used both improperly there. But the Batwoman is interesting because I thought, okay, Catwoman is certainly someone who I believe is pretty free with her sexuality. I We could probably call her bisexual, I think. And of course, Batwoman is a lesbian. So is there, you know, is there going to be something here? And I wasn't, I didn't know that it was kind of in continuity anyways. I wonder like what part Batman had to play in all of this, but because of a later instance where Batwoman actually calls her cat and she gets really upset about that and says, he only calls me that, then there's just no chance, no way for them to really like, would, would they have hooked up? But then there's like this seduction scene, which is almost too intense and made me feel uncomfortable. It is, there's clearly a reason why she's doing this, but she was making poor Kate really uncomfortable and flustered. Oh, it almost was like borderline 
sexual assault. But it was also interesting that that Kate was definitely turned on enough to the mask came off. It was crazy. And she was, I guess, willing to just have that hookup even though they were on mission. So I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was interesting, beautiful animation. Uh, It was anime style, which is why it's in my anime watch list. And yeah, I mean, the story was, was pretty good and got to see characters. You don't necessarily see interacting with each other. Julia Pennyworth was there. Yeah. Okay. And now finally literature recommendations. So from my Daria reading list, breakfast of champions by Kurt Vonnegut and man, first, Vonnegut I had read was Slaughterhouse-Five, and I just thought it was so weird that I didn't like it. And now I've read one short story and now two other novels by him, and I'm starting to like him and just expect and lean into his weirdness. And I can totally see why this would be controversial and people have trouble and not like what he is doing with racial interactions and things. That's why people it made people uncomfortable, basically. But it's definitely a satire for sure. So he's leaning into race relations and like basically being very bald face about it. And um, that's why people are upset because sometimes when you look truth in the face, it makes you uncomfortable. That is white fragility. Okay. The wish by Nicholas Sparks. That was, I would say it was okay. I, I certainly liked, I think the flashbacks better and I should have expected, I was expecting to be like heartbroken, but then I was worse heartbroken than I thought I would be. Jane Eyre, the manga by Crystal S. Chan and illustrated by Sunika Lee. And you can hear that on my Dear Reader episode. How do you live by Genzaburo Yoshino? And this is uh, Miyazaki's favorite childhood book. And it's going to be his final film. It's narrated in two voices. The first belongs to Copper, 15, who after the death of his father must confront inevitable and enormous change, including his own betrayal of his best friend. In between episodes of Copper's emerging story, his uncle writes to him in a journal, sharing knowledge and offering advice on life's big questions as Copper begins to encounter them. Over the course of the story, Copper, like his namesake Copernicus, looks to the stars and uses his discoveries about the heavens, earth, and human nature to answer the question of how we will live. And I gave this five stars. It's actually really powerful, but I have no idea how you would adapt this into an anime, frankly. I read The Dharma Bombs, another Daria reading list by Jack Kerouac, and I wanted to see if it would pop up on our hiking segments that we've been doing over at Required Reading, but there's not as much hiking, and uh, Jack does not reach enlightenment, and it does, you know, it is a bit meandering if you've read On the Road. I think you should be used to it, but yeah, it's interesting. I read Serial Volumes 1 and 2 by Terry Moore, which stars... Zoe from Rachel Rising and kind of her own story. And she's tracking down a serial killer. Then Apples Never Fall by Leanne Moriarty. And this is my second one, I think, of because I did Big Little Lies, of course. It was interesting because it's a twist, but it's almost like a twist of not a twist. But that's all I'll say. I don't want to, to spoil things, but it takes place in two different times. One of them is the present. A mother has gone missing. And then the other one is like the past creeping up to the present, I think like a year prior. And you just get to know the the family and the children and everything. 
And then finally, The Rising Storm, which is a High Republic novel by Kevin Scott. And this was okay. It's read. I'm not like super, super excited about them. It reads the same way as the initial High Republic, Light of the Jedi, I think it was called. So if you weren't like super hyped about that and too many characters it's it's going to be the same thing i'm not going to lie to you it's it's got it reads the same way which probably people were told very specifically to keep in the same style it has mostly the same characters got a couple new ones you know there is some pelvic affiliation and there are some queer characters so they certainly are expanding in that way but yeah, not not too much, I would say. But the ending was so intriguing that I have since gotten the third. So I am at, at least keeping on, keeping on. But, you know, it's up to you. If you've got, if you like Star Wars, you want to give it a shot, you know, start with The Light of the Jedi and maybe give the second one a shot. But I, I think things are not going to change for you if you were a bit cool on it. Okay, this is it. I feel like this is a long episode. Okay, well, remember that you can send any questions or comments to backworldoracle.gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, follow it on Twitter, subscribe to the show on YouTube for an uncut version where I accidentally say (laughs) a physiological item. I wonder if anyone will catch it, but I slipped and said that, which that reminds me of... Oh, I can't say it on, um, well, no, (laughs) I could, heck, one of the, one of the nights we were performing (laughs) this, I'll cut this out. You only get this with video because I've already said one thing and I've said, oh my gosh, all of the things I've said in this episode. You can also follow the Batman universe on Facebook and Twitter as well and support the Batman universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to My High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. If you're in New York City, go see For Colored Girls. I implore you. Beautiful and powerful. Until next time, which I think it's going to be some Birds of Prey, the last Birds of Prey arc before Gail Simone begins. Uh-oh. We'll see. But until then, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? <laughs>